The following are real events based on first-hand historical documents featuring both real and imagined dialogue and contain adult language and situations. Listener discretion is advised. The history of the settlement of the American continent is one fraught with the dehumanization of the indigenous populations that occupied the land prior to the first colonization efforts of the late 15th and early 16th centuries. This is their story. Spain, March, 1493. On August 3rd, 1492, Christopher Columbus set sail from Spain at the behest of the royal family in hopes of finding an all-water route to Asia. Two months later, Columbus landed in the Bahamas, where he and his crew spent the next five months exploring the Caribbean. Columbus left 39 men behind to build a settlement called La Navidad in present-day Haiti. He kidnapped between 10 to 25 indigenous people to take back to Spain. Eight survived the trip. The following is an excerpt from the letter Columbus sent King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain upon his return home. I have determined to write you this letter to inform you of everything that has been done and discovered in this voyage of mine. On the 33rd day after leaving Cadiz, I came into the Indian Sea where I discovered many islands inhabited by numerous people. I took possession of all of them for our most fortunate king by making public proclamations and unfurling his standard, no one making any resistance. The island called Juana, as well as the others in its neighborhood, is exceedingly fertile. It has numerous harbors on all sides, very safe and wide, above comparison with any I have ever seen. Through it, 
flow many very broad and health-given rivers, and there are in it numerous very lofty mountains. All these islands are very beautiful and quite different shapes, easy to be traversed and full of the greatest variety of trees reaching to the stars. In the island, which I have said before was called Hispana, there are very lofty and beautiful mountains, great farms, groves and fields, most fertile both for cultivation and for pasturage, and well adapted for constructing buildings. The convenience of the harbors in this island and the excellence of the rivers in volume and salubrity surpass human belief, unless one should see them in the trees, pasture lands and fruits different much from those of Juana. Besides, this Hispana abounds in various kinds of species, gold and metals. The inhabitants are all, as I said before, unprovided with any sort of iron, and they are destitute of arms, which are entirely unknown to them, and for which they are not adapted. Not on account of any bodily deformity, for they are well made, but because they are timid and full of terror. But when they see that they are safe and all fear is banished, they are very guileless and honest and very liberal of all they have. No one refuses the asker anything that he possesses. On the contrary, they themselves invite us to ask for it. They manifest the greatest affection towards all of us, exchanging valuable things for trifles, content with the very least thing or nothing at all. I gave them many beautiful and pleasing things, which I have brought with me for no return whatever, in order to win their affection, and that they might become Christians and inclined to love our king and queen and princesses and all the people of Spain, and that they might be eager to search for and gather and give us what they abound in and we greatly need. Spain, May 1493. The papal bull Intercatera, issued by Pope Alexander VI on May 4, 1493, played a central role in the Spanish conquest of the New World. The document supported Spain's strategy to ensure its exclusive right to the lands discovered by Columbus the previous year. It established a demarcation line 100 leagues west of the Azores and Cape Verde Islands and assigned Spain the exclusive right to acquire territorial possessions and to trade in all the lands west of that line. All others were forbidden to approach the lands west of the line without special license from the rulers of Spain. This effectively gave Spain a monopoly on the lands in the New World. The bull stated that any land not inhabited by Christians was available to be discovered, claimed, and exploited by Christian rulers, and declared that the Catholic faith and the Christian religion be exalted and be everywhere increased and spread, that the health of souls be cared for and that barbarous nations be overthrown and brought to the faith itself. This doctrine of discovery became the basis of all European claims in the Americas, as well as the foundation for the United States' Western expansion. The following is an excerpt from that papal bull. Wherefore has become Catholic kings and princes, after earnest consideration of all matters, especially of the rise and spread of the Catholic faith, as was the fashion of your ancestors, kings of renowned memory, you have purposed with the favor of divine clemency to bring under your sway the said mainlands and islands with their residents and inhabitants, and to bring them to the Catholic faith. Hence, heartily commending in the Lord this your holy and praiseworthy purpose, and desirous that it be duly accomplished. 
and that the name of our Savior be carried into those regions. We exhort you very earnestly in the Lord and by your reception of holy baptism, whereby you are bound to our espatolic commands, and by the bowels of the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, enjoy strictly that as in much as with eager zeal for your true faith you design to equip and dispatch this expedition. You propose also, as is your duty, to leave the peoples dwelling in those islands and country to embrace the Christian religion, nor at any time let dangers or hardships deter you therefrom, with the stout hope and trust in your hearts that Almighty God will further your undertakings. And, in order that you may enter upon so great an undertaking with greater readiness and heartiness, endowed with benefit of our apostolic favor, we of our own accord, not at your instance nor at the request of anyone else in your regard, but out of our own soul largest and the certain knowledge and out of the fullness of our apostolic power by the authority of Almighty God conferred upon us in blessed Peter and of the vicarship of Jesus Christ which we hold on earth do by tenor of these presents should any of said islands have been found by your envers and captains give grant and assign to you and your heirs and successors kings of Castile and Leon forever together with all their dominions cities camps places and villages and all rights jurisdictions appurtenances all islands and all mainlands found and to be found discovered and to be discovered towards the west and south by drawing and establishing a line from the arctic pole namely the north to the antarctic pole namely to the south no matter whether the said mainlands and islands are found and to be found in the direction of india or towards any other quarter the said line to be distant 100 leagues towards the west and south from any of the islands commonly known as Azores and Cape Verde. With this proviso, however, that none of the islands and mainlands found and to be found, discovered and to be discovered, beyond that said line towards the west and south, be in the actual possession of any Christian king or prince up to the birthday of our Lord Jesus Christ, just past from which the present year 1493 begins. And we make a point and depute you and your said heirs and successors, lords of them with full and free power, authority and jurisdiction, every kind. With this proviso, however, that by this our gift, grant, and assignment, no right acquired by any Christian prince, who may be in actual possession of said islands and mainlands prior to the said birthday of our Lord Jesus Christ, is hereby to be understood to be withdrawn or taken away. Moreover, we command you in virtue of holy obedience that employing all due diligence in the premises as you also promise, nor do we doubt your compliance therein in accordance with your loyalty and royal greatness of spirit. You should appoint to the aforesaid mainlands and islands worthy, God-fearing, learned, skilled, and experienced men in order to instruct the aforesaid inhabitants and residents in the Catholic faith and train them in good morals. 
Furthermore, under penalty of excommunication, latte sentente, to be incurred ipso facto, should anyone thus contravene, we strictly forbid all persons of whatsoever rank, even imperial and royal, or of whatsoever estate, degree, order, or condition, to dare without your special permit or that of your aforesaid heirs and successors, to go for the purpose of trade or any other reason to the islands or mainlands, found and to be found, discovered and to be discovered, towards the west and south, by drawing and establishing a line from the Arctic Pole to the Antarctic Pole, no matter whether the mainlands or islands, found and to be found, lie in the direction of India or towards any other quarter whatsoever. The said line to be distant 100 leagues towards the west and south, as is aforesaid from any of the islands commonly known as the Azores and Cape Verde. Apostolic constitutions and ordinances and other decrees whatsoever to be contrary notwithstanding. We trust in him from whom empires and governments and all good things proceed, that should you, with the Lord's guidance, pursue this holy and praiseworthy undertaking, in a short while your hardships and endeavors will attain the most felicitous results to the happiness and glory of all Christendom. Virginia, 1600s. In the early days of the colonization of America, the Papal Bull, Intercatera, known widely today as the Doctrine of Discovery, was warped, stretched, and molded by British colonizers in order to justify the expropriation of indigenous lands. One of the distinctive rationalizations colonists used was the convenient idea of terra nullis or nobody's land. Even though much of the allegedly vacant land was owned and utilized by indigenous people, the colonists helped themselves to as much land as they wanted. The following scene is a fictionalized depiction of Virginia colonists establishing terra nullis using both real and imagined dialogue. And I say, by what right or warrant can we enter into the land of these savages and take away their rightful inheritance? You've said it yourself. These are savages. Savages have no rights. Are they not human? Your brother and his family were massacred at Jamestown. How can you call that human? The slaying of 347 innocent people. It's just as our governor stated that our first work is the expulsion of the savage. Chaplain, what was that Latin expression you were telling me about earlier? Terra nullius. What does that mean? It refers to a territory without a master. A vacant or nobody's land. A vacant land? This land is not vacant. It's being utilized by these people. These people? Savages! They're savages! Whatever you want to call them, they're not just going to leave the land. Then we take it! Take it? Yes! An eye for an eye. Chaplain, what was it that John Locke said about the Indian who resists? He said that they should be destroyed as a lion or a tiger, one of those wild, savage beasts with whom men can have no society or security. The American Revolution 
How the original 13 colonies were able to collectively defeat a global superpower in Britain during the Revolutionary War has been a topic of much debate for historians. One of the overlooked reasons was the experience local militias gained in colonizing land from indigenous populations. From the beginning, these constant acts of genocide allowed colonizers ample practice at fine-tuning war tactics that paid off in their war for independence from the British Empire. These tactics hastened once the war was over as the new United States, under the leadership of George Washington, knew that they must build their nation on indigenous land acquired by war or treaty and in doing so set the U.S. on a path of westward expansion that transformed tribal homelands into American territories and then American states. Washington's first goal was to acquire indigenous land with a distant second goal of establishing just policies for dealing with indigenous populations. Washington believed that he could accomplish these goals through diplomacy instead of war and that indigenous populations would eventually cede to land purchases. Despite this more open-minded approach, the language Washington used was similar to that of early colonists. In a letter to James Duane, In September 1783, Washington wrote, At first view, it may seem a little extraneous, but when I am called upon to give an opinion upon the terms of a peace proper to be made with the Indians, that I should go into the formation of new states, but the settlement of the western country and making a peace with the Indians are so analogous that there can be no definition of the one without involving the considerations of the other. For I repeat it again, and I am clear in my opinion, that policy and economy point very strongly to the expediency of being upon good terms with the Indians, and the propriety of purchasing their lands in preference to attempting to drive them out by force of arms out of their country, which, as we have already experienced, is like driving the wild beasts of the forest, which will return us as soon as the pursuit is at an end, and fall, perhaps, on those that are left there when the gradual extension of our settlements will as certainly cause the savage as the wolf to retire, both being beasts of prey, though they differ in shape. In a word, there is nothing to be obtained by an Indian war but the soil they live on, and this can be had by purchase at less expense. And without that bloodshed and those distresses which helpless women and children are made partakers of in all kinds of disputes with them. Missouri, May 1804. President Thomas Jefferson was the first to propose broad policies that called for the removal of indigenous populations from their homelands. The U.S. political system at the time viewed tribes as international sovereign entities. Jefferson's eight years in office were steeped in a relentless pursuit for westward expansion, believing, as James Rhonda wrote in his 1997 book, Thomas Jefferson and the Changing West, that Indian country belonged in white hands. Under Jefferson, the central feature of federal Indian policy was termed our final consolidation that sought the acquisition of lands east of the Mississippi River and the removal of indigenous populations to territories west of the Mississippi. The purchase of the Louisiana Territory from France in 1803 
was the boldest step of westward expansion to happen in the still infant country. Even before the purchase was complete, Jefferson asked Congress to finance an expedition to survey the lands of the Louisiana Territory and hired his then-secretary, Meriwether Lewis of Virginia, to command the expedition. In considering the scope and challenges that lay ahead of him on this corpse of discovery, Lewis enlisted the help of an army friend and fellow Virginian, William Clark, to be his equal in command. Jefferson used the expedition to strengthen the American claim to the Northwest under the International Law of Discovery, and Lewis and Clark performed well-recognized rituals of discovery in these territories. Lewis and Clark distributed medals, flags, and uniforms in what they called sovereignty tokens, and by accepting these items, Indian chiefs, according to Lewis and Clark, demonstrated their allegiance to the United States. In a prepared speech to be delivered by Lewis to the tribes they encountered, Jefferson repeatedly called the indigenous people children while referring to himself as their new father. Excerpts of this speech are as follows. My friends and children, chiefs of the Ostriches, Missouris, Kansas, Ottos, Panisse, Aowas, and Suez, I take you by the hand of friendship and give you a hearty welcome to the seat of the government of the United States. The journey which you have taken to visit your fathers on this side of our island is a long one, and your having undertaken it is a proof that you desire to become acquainted with us. I thank the Great Spirit that he has protected you through the journey and brought you safely to the residence of your friends. And I hope he will have you constantly in his safekeeping and restore you in good health to your nations and families. My friends and children, we are descended from the old nations which live beyond the great water. But we and our forefathers have been so long here that we seem, like you, to have grown out of this land. We consider ourselves no longer as of the old nations beyond the great water, but as united in one family with our red brethren here. The French, the English, the Spaniards have now agreed with us to retire from all the country which you and we hold between Canada and Mexico, and never more to return to it. And remember the words I now speak to you, my children. They are never to return again. We have become as numerous as the leaves of the trees. And though we do not boast, we do not fear any nation. We are now your fathers, and you shall not lose by the change. As soon as Spain had agreed to withdraw from all the waters of the Missouri and Mississippi, I felt the desire of becoming acquainted with all my red children beyond the Mississippi and of uniting them with us as we have done those on this side of that river in the bonds of peace and friendship. I wished to learn what we could do to benefit them by furnishing them the necessaries they want in exchange for their furs and peltries. I therefore sent our beloved Captain Lewis, one of my own family, to go up the Missouri River to get acquainted with all the Indian nations in its neighborhood, to take them by the hand, deliver my talks to them, and to inform us in what we could do to be useful to them. Some of you who are here have seen him and heard his words. You have taken him by the hand and been friendly to him. My children, I thank you for the services you rendered him and for your attention to his words. When he returns, he will tell us where we should establish factories to be convenient to you all and what we must send to them. 
In establishing a trade with you, we desire to make no profit. We shall ask from you only what everything costs us and give you for your furs and pelts whatever we can get for them again. Be assured you shall find your advantage in this change of your friends. It will take us some time to be in readiness to supply your wants. But in the meanwhile, until Captain Lewis returns, the traders who have heretofore furnished you will continue to do so. My friends and children, I have now an important advice to give you. I have already told you that you are all my children, and I wish you to live in peace and friendship with one another, as brethren of the same family ought to do. How much better is it for our neighbors to help than to hurt one another? How much happier must make them if you will cease to make war on one another? You will live in friendship with all mankind. You can employ all your time in providing food and clothing to yourselves and your families. Your men will not be destroyed in war, and your women and children will lie down to sleep in their cabins without fear of being surprised by their enemies and killed or carried away. Your numbers will be increased instead of diminishing, and you will live in plenty and in quiet. Children, I have given this advice to all your red brethren on this side of the Mississippi. They are all following it. They are increasing in their numbers, are learning to clothe and provide for their families as we do, and you see the proofs of it in such of them as you happen to find here. My children, we are strong. We are numerous as the stars in the heavens, and we are all gunmen. Yet we live in peace with all nations, and all nations esteem and honor us because we are peaceable and just. Then let my red children be peaceable and just also. Take each other by the hand and hold it fast. If ever bad men among your neighbors should do you wrong and their nation refuses you justice, apply to the beloved man whom we shall place nearest to you. He will go to the offending nation and endeavor to obtain right and preserve peace. If ever bad men among yourselves injure your neighbors, be always ready to do justice. It is always honorable in those who have done wrong to acknowledge and make amends for it, and it is the only way in which peace can be maintained among men. Remember then my advice, my children. Carry it home to your people and tell them that from the day that they have become all the same family, from the day that we have become father to them all, we wish, as a true father should do, that we may all live together as one household, and that before they strike one another, they should come to their father and let him endeavor to make up the quarrel. My children, you come from the other side of our great island, from where the sun sets to see your new friends at the sun rising. You have now arrived where the waters are constantly rising and falling every day, but you are still distant from the sea. I very much desire that you should not stop here, but go on and see your brethren as far as the edge of the great water. I am persuaded you have so far seen that every man, by the way, has received you as his brothers and has been ready to do you all the kindnesses in his power. You will see the same thing quite to the seashore, and I wish you therefore to go and visit our great cities in that quarter and to see how many friends and brothers you have here. You will then have traveled a long line from west to east, and if you had time to go from north to south, from Canada to Florida, you would find it as long in that direction and all the people as since sincerely your friends. 
I wish you, my children, to see all you can and tell your people all you see, because I am sure the more they know us, the more they will be our hearty friends. I invite you, therefore, to pay a visit to Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, and the cities still beyond that if you should be willing to go further. We will provide carriages to convoy you and a person to go with you to see that you want for nothing. By the time you come back, the snows will be melted on the mountains. Ice in the rivers broken up and you will be wishing to set out on your return home. Oh, my children, I have long desired to see you. I have now opened my heart to you. Let my words sink into your hearts and never be forgotten. If ever lying people or bad spirits should raise up clouds between us, let us come together as friends and explain to each other what is misrepresented or misunderstood. The clouds will fly away like the morning fog and the sun of friendship appear and shine forever bright and clear between us. My children, it may happen that while you are here, occasion may arise to talk about many things which I do not now particularly mention. The Secretary at War will always be ready to talk with you, and you are to consider whatever he says as said by myself. He will also take care of you and see that you are furnished with all the comforts here. Thomas Jefferson The American South, 1830. President Andrew Jackson, long obsessed with what he called Indian removal, signed the Indian Removal Act, granting the U.S. government the power to exchange native-held land in the Cotton Kingdom east of the Mississippi River for land to the west in the Indian colonization zone, present-day Oklahoma. The signing of this act was meant to address what had come to be known as the Indian Problem, the permanent removal of unfamiliar, alien-like people from the land white settlers wanted and felt like they deserved. The law required the government to negotiate removal treaties fairly, voluntarily, peacefully, and without coercion. However, President Jackson and his government frequently ignored this law and forced indigenous peoples from lands they had lived on for generations. Facing the threat of an invasion by the U.S. Army, the Choctaw became the first nation to be expelled. With no provisions and no help from the government, thousands of indigenous peoples were made to travel by foot thousands of miles in what is now known as the Trail of Tears. In some instances, up to half of the nation's populations perished during this trip. After the Civil War, journalist James Mooney interviewed people who had been involved in this forced removal. Based on these first-hand accounts, he described the scene in 1838 when the U.S. Army removed the last of the Cherokees by force. 
Under General Winfield Scott's orders, the troops were disposed at various points throughout the Cherokee country, where stockade forts were erected for gathering in and holding the Indians preparatory to removal. From these, squads of troops were sent to search out with rifle and bayonet every small cabin hidden away in the coves or by sides of mountain streams to seize and bring in prisoners, all the occupants, however, or wherever they might be found. Families at dinner were startled by the sudden gleam of bayonets in the doorway and rose up to be driven with blows and oaths along the weary miles of trail that led to the stockade. Men were seized in their fields and going along the road, women were taken from their wheels and children from their play. In many cases, on turning for one last look as they crossed the ridge, they saw their homes in flames, fired by lawless rabble that followed on the heels of the soldiers to loot and pillage. So keen were these outlaws on the scene that in some instances they were driven off the cattle and other stock of the Indians almost before the soldiers had fairly started their owners in the other direction. Systemic hunts were made by the same men for Indian graves to rob them of silver pendants and other valuables deposited with the dead. A Georgia volunteer, afterward a colonel in the Confederate service said, I fought through the Civil War and have seen men shot to pieces and slaughtered by the thousands, but the Cherokee removal was the cruelest work I ever knew. Alexis de Tocqueville, a French observer, had this to say after witnessing firsthand the forced deportation of indigenous peoples from the southeast. At the end of the year 1831, while I was on the left bank of the Mississippi at a place called by Europeans Memphis, there arrived a numerous band of Choctaws. These savages had left their country and were endeavoring to gain the right bank of the Mississippi where they hoped to find asylum which had been promised to them by the American government. It was in the middle of winter and the cold was unusually severe. The snow had frozen hard upon the ground and the river was drifting huge masses of ice. The Indians had their families with them and they brought in their train and the wounded and sick. With children newly born and old men upon the verge of death, they possessed neither tents nor wagons but only their arms and some provisions. I saw them embark to pass the mighty river Never will that solemn spectacle fade from my remembrance. No cry, no sob was heard amongst the assembled crowd. All were silent. Their calamities were of ancient date, and they knew them to be irremediable. The Indians had all stepped into the bark, which was to carry them across, but their dogs remained upon the bank. As soon as these animals perceived their masters were finally leaving the shore, they set up a dismal howl and plunging all together into the icy waters of the Mississippi, they swam after the boat. Pine Ridge Reservation, South Dakota, 1890. Following the U.S. Civil War, the government was able to refocus their efforts on the forced deportation of the Romanian indigenous populations still living on native lands. The War Department took to calling indigenous populations living outside of designated federal reservations fomenters of disturbance. 
to ensure the compliance of the remaining holdouts, the U.S. military issued arrest warrants of indigenous leaders. A warrant was issued for Bigfoot, the leader of 350 Lakotas, 250 of whom were women and children. Seeing no other way to ensure the safety of his people, Bigfoot led them through sub-zero December weather to Pine Ridge to surrender. En route on foot, they encountered U.S. troops who ordered them to be taken to the army camp at Wounded Knee Creek, where soldiers with machine guns surrounded them on the hillside. The following morning, while collecting the captives' weapons, a Winchester rifle was discovered. The owner refused to give up his beloved rifle. In the scuffle that ensued, the rifle discharged into the air. The killings began immediately. In a matter of minutes, 300 Suez lay dead, and 25 soldiers were killed by friendly fire. Bleeding survivors were taken to a nearby church sanctuary that was decorated in candlelight and greenery for the Christmas season, with a banner that read, Peace on Earth and Goodwill to Men. This slaughter symbolized the end of indigenous armed resistance in the U.S. Three weeks prior to the massacre, General William Tecumseh Sherman, named after the great Shawnee chief Tecumseh, held a press conference in New York City during which he made clear his lack of remorse for three decades' worth of indigenous genocide. The following dialogue is taken directly from this press conference. General, what do you feel has been the Indians' contribution to society? Indians must either work or starve. They never have worked. They won't work now, and they will never work. But should not the government supply them with enough to keep them from starvation? Why should the government support 260,000 able-bodied campers? No government that the world has ever seen has done such a thing. Some 200,000 years ago, human societies, having originated in sub-Saharan Africa, began migrating in all directions and their descendants eventually populated the globe. The land that Europeans arrived on in 1492 was not uninhabited land. Prior to European colonization of the Western Hemisphere, starting in the late 15th century, the population of the Western Hemisphere was roughly 100 million, with two-fifths or 40 million people living on the continent now known as North America. This is compared to the roughly 50 million people who are living in European territories. The millions of people living in North America at this time had been there for up to 20,000 years. The North American indigenous populations were supported by creating a relatively disease-free paradise. Indigenous people practiced herbal medicine, surgery, and dentistry. They engaged in hygienic and ritual bathing to keep diseases at bay. A majority consumed vegetarian-based diets supplemented by corn, hunting, and fishing that allowed them to live long and well with abundant ceremonial and recreational periods. By the time of the European invasions, indigenous people occupied and shaped every part of the North American continent, 
establishing extensive trade networks and roads, and sustaining populations by adapting to specific natural environments. A magnitude of this was lost through European colonization. The initial Europeans who participated in the colonization of America were heirs to rich and ancient cultures, social relations, and customs in their lands of origin. In the passage to the Americas and encountering indigenous inhabitants, they largely abandoned and untangled the webs of European mores, manners, and social relations to participate in a culture of conquest, violence, exploration, destruction, and dehumanization. While disease played a part in the eradication of indigenous populations, the lion's share can be credited to unrelenting war on the part of colonizers against indigenous inhabitants. Nearly all indigenous populations of America were reduced by 90% following the genocide associated with colonization projects. Many historians attribute this one-sided colonial violence to racism. Military historian John Grenier argues that the out-of-control momentum of extreme violence of unlimited warfare fueled racial hatred. He goes on to say that generations of Americans have made the killing of indigenous people an element of their military tradition and thereby a part of a shared American identity. Because of this, Grenier equates war with racial hatred. The justification for this indigenous genocide came from one of the earliest examples of international law known as the Doctrine of Discovery. With origins dating back to the 5th century AD, the Doctrine of Discovery established a spiritual, political, and legal justification for colonization and seizure of land not inhabited by Christians. The Papa Bull Intercatera, issued by Pope Alexander VI on May 4, 1493, played a central role in the Spanish conquest of the New World. This doctrine of discovery became the basis of all European claims in the Americas, as well as the foundation for the United States' Western expansion. The doctrine gave carte blanche to European colonizers to commit horrifying acts of genocide against indigenous inhabitants. These acts included unrelenting war, the killing of women, children, and elderly, burning entire villages, intentionally spreading disease, destroying food sources, forced alcohol consumption, monetized scalping, the forced selling of land, and the forced removal and relocation from land. Indigenous children were removed from lands and placed in boarding schools to be assimilated into white society where they were forbidden from speaking their own language and indoctrinated in Christianity. While attending these schools, many children suffered emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. George Washington enlisted policies calling indigenous populations the savage as the wolf. Thomas Jefferson believed that forcing indigenous people to adopt European-style agriculture and modes of living would allow them to quickly progress from savagery to civilization. In the U.S. Supreme Court in the 1823 case, Johnson v. McIntosh, Chief Justice John Marshall's opinion in the unanimous decision held that the principle of discovery gave European nations an absolute right to new world lands. In essence, American Indians had only a right of occupancy which could be abolished. This landmark case made the European International Doctrine of Discovery Law part of American law. The Trail of Tears was the forced displacement of approximately 60,000 indigenous peoples between 1830 and 1850. 
a policy first envisioned by President Thomas Jefferson and enacted under President Andrew Jackson, the Trail of Tears forced indigenous peoples from their ancestral homes in the southeastern United States to areas west of the Mississippi River in present-day Oklahoma, designated as Indian Territory in compliance with the Indian Removal Act of 1830. The General Allotment Act of 1887, otherwise known as the Dawes Act, allowed the federal government to break up tribal lands. The Battle of Wounded Knee in 1890 marked the definitive end of indigenous resistance to encroachment of white colonizers. The Indian Citizenship Act of 1924 imposed unsolicited American citizenship on indigenous people, a gesture of assimilation and dissolving of nations from the federal government. The Indian Reorganization Act of 1934 ended further allotment of indigenous territories. This act allowed the federal government to buy reservation land to restore land to relevant native nations. This allowed for tribal government. Native nations did not have to accept these terms. The Termination Act of 1953 disbanded tribes and sold lands to relocate indigenous peoples off reservations and into urban areas to further assimilation. In 1980, in the case U.S. v. Suez Nations of Indians, the Supreme Court ruled that Black Hills, the land where Mount Rushmore is located, had been taken illegally and that remuneration equal to the initial offering price plus interest of nearly $106 million be paid. The Suez refused the award and continued to demand the return of Black Hills. The award money sits in an interest-bearing account which, as of 2011, is now worth over $1.3 billion. The Suez Nation, which is one of the most impoverished communities in America, never wanted money because they believed that the land was never for sale and that accepting the money would validate the U.S. theft of their most sacred land. On September 13, 2007, the U.N. adopted the long-anticipated Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples by a vote of 143 to 4. The four countries that voted against the declaration were the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, four nations that were developed by the international law of the doctrine of discovery. The Dakota Access Pipeline protest began in early 2016 as a grassroots opposition to the construction of Energy Transfer Partners Dakota Access Pipeline in the northern U.S. The pipeline runs from the Bakken oil fields in western North Dakota to southern Illinois, crossing beneath the Missouri and Mississippi rivers, as well as under part of Lake Oa near the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. Many members of the Standing Rock tribe and surrounding communities consider the pipeline to be a serious threat to the region's water supply. The construction also directly threatens ancient burial grounds and cultural sites of historic importance. These protests continue to the present day. On June 13, 2022, the Supreme Court ruling in Denzepi v. U.S. ruled that federal prosecution following prosecution of a tribal offense in a federally funded court of Indian offenses does not constitute double jeopardy, a ruling that undermines the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution that prevents citizens from being prosecuted for the same crime twice.
On June 29, 2022, the Supreme Court ruling in Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta ruled that both state and federal government have jurisdiction to prosecute non-native people who commit crimes against a native person on tribal lands. The decision upends nearly 200 years of precedence recognizing the right of tribal nations to self-govern. Jody Bird, an American indigenous academic, once wrote, The story of the new world is horror. The story of America is a crime. She argues that it's necessary to start with the origin of the United States as a settler state and its explicit intention to occupy the continent. These origins contain the historical seeds of genocide. Any true history of the United States must focus on what has happened to and with indigenous peoples and what still happens. It's not just past colonization actions, but also the continued colonization of American Indian nations, peoples, and lands that allows the United States to cast its imperialist gaze globally with what is essentially a settler colony's national construction of itself as an ever more perfect multicultural, multicultural democracy. While the status of American Indians as sovereign nations colonized by the United States continues to haunt and reflect its raison d'etre. Heavy Heads Season 3 Episode 1 Our First American Kin is written and produced by Tanner Hines. Christopher Columbus, voiced by Augustin Sanchez. Pope Alexander VI, Chaplain, Colonist 1, Colonist 2, Thomas Jefferson, Georgia Volunteer, Reporter and General Sherman, voiced by Tanner Hines. George Washington, James Mooney, and Alexis de Tocqueville, voiced by Lauren Hutton. Narration and art design by Evan Verrilli. Original music by Real Blue Heartache Kids. The music is available wherever you buy or stream music. If you or a loved one is experiencing a psychiatric emergency and live in the United States, please call 988 or 1-800-273-8255 or text HOME to 741-741 for free and confidential support 24-7-365 from the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and the Crisis Text Line. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram using the handle at heavyheadpod. Subscribe to our official YouTube channel, Heavyhead Podcast. You can email us at heavyheadpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed the show, please share us with a loved one. Lastly, merch is available at heavyhead.bigcartel.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again next month. Until then, take care of yourself. <laughs>